So last time we started our discussion of this, uh, what we're calling lie number one, and the handout I gave you today is almost identical to uh, the one I gave you last time. It is identical covering everything we talked about last time, but I've added one more point in the first section that we're getting to today, just sort of a, to remind you what we're talking about. Uh, <clears throat> in this age of intellectual history, or whatever we call it, um, in the modern age, and maybe even more so in the postmodern age, if there is such a thing, um, one very common element in ordinary, the ordinary worldview of the world is that the world is the universe, is the only the product of time and chance. And the word only is important in that sentence. In other words, uh, all existence is the material existence. Uh, and so everything, meaning everything, can be accounted for in materialistic terms. Now, of course, most people hold that at the same time they hold to something that's really quite contradictory to that. Uh, because most ordinary people do believe in some sort of spiritual reality that's not a part of the material world in a strict sense. Uh, so there's a lot, especially in the, in the postmodern age, we've We've really taken to holding, to sort of accepting, I guess, that we can hold two, two contrary beliefs together. Like we can say, this is true and this is not true at the same time. And of course that uh, is not possible, but <clears throat> anyway, sorry, I'm distracting myself. So last time we talked about this idea of materialistic naturalism, and we went through a bit of the history of how this developed, especially in uh, the scientific community, but also just in the, in, in the public uh, square. This is a very prominent, maybe even dominant uh, way of thinking. Certainly it is dominant among the academic elites of Western culture. Um, and so we, uh, we went through this, but we'll quickly proceed through this again. The, this, this happened as we developed into uh, in the practice of science. We, at some point, we, we decided it's a good idea not to just jump ahead to magical explanations of things or supernatural explanations of things that if we set aside the supernatural explanation for the moment we can study some phenomenon in the world and figure it out and maybe we can figure out stuff that we used to say was magical or supernatural 
or divine intervention, or et cetera, et cetera. And so in the modern age, of course, it's been extremely fruitful uh, that we have developed our understanding of how uh, the material world operates, and we've used that understanding to great advantage. I mean, we are all carrying around in our pockets this powerful computing device that uh, when I was born was inconceivable. So that's not a long time when you talk about the progress, uh, you know, the history of humanity. Uh, in fact, we don't have to go back to when I was born. Um, that there's something sort of miraculous about our technological development. And we, we did that because, in part, we decided we could benefit by not just jumping to supernatural explanations. But at some point along the way, probably not a point, but as we did this, as we progressed in this, we moved from, uh, let's, let's set aside the supernatural explanation while we explore the material world, to the material world is all there is. Because the tools of our scientific enterprise can't uh, measure the supernatural. And so uh, along the way, we've sort of dropped the, not only the usefulness of supernatural explanations, but the very necessity of it. Uh, so as we've developed in our understanding of the material universe, we've sort of become focused on the material universe to such a degree that we deny that there is anything else. And uh, then the fifth step in this uh, process is we appeal to time and chance. So when we come across things we can't explain from this materialist development uh, approach, then we think, well, it, we just need a longer time frame. So we come to this point of view that says all existence is the product of time and chance. <clears throat> Scientists, we say, are the smartest people in the world, so we should believe everything they say, even when they're not talking about science. And frequently, of course, they act as though they are talking about science when they're talking about something else. For example, uh, if we're talking about the origin of all things, how did everything come to be in the first place? Well, that's just simply not a question that is answerable by the practice of science. Science requires repeatable experiments and history is not a repeatable experiment. History, by its definition, has uh, it is a set of unique things. So however the world began is how it began. We can't go back and measure it anymore, or observe it again, or run an experiment. Now we could run an experiment that shows that it's possible to create amino acids by zapping a certain stew with electricity, 
Okay, well, then I guess that's possible. But that doesn't tell us that that is what happened. It tells us that it's on the list of things that may have happened. Uh, so uh, one of the problems we have is because we've elevated material science, natural science in everyone's thinking is we tend to grant authority to science even when it's not talking about science. <clears throat> so we have these common expressions where people tell us we're, we're required to believe the science. And that is not a, that is not a scientific argument. If I say you should believe the science, I'm assuming that there is something that we could call the science, when in fact science in its very definition means we, we don't ever think we've arrived. The, for something to become scientific law, well, you could count all the scientific laws on your two hands. Yeah, and the point of it is it's always questionable. Um, so, now that doesn't mean I shouldn't rely on the technological product. If it's reliable, I should rely on it. Uh, but that is kind of a separate question. So, as we're uh, evaluating any view of the world, uh, I think we have these three principles that are useful. There's probably others that would be useful, but, uh, you know, just for the sake of clarity and brevity, we're, we're talking about three C's. So when we're talking about our worldview, our, what you might call our compre comprehensive understanding of things, and we want to evaluate that, <clears throat> we, we think, first of all, is it comprehensive? In other words, does it cover most everything? And does it cover it well? Is there, are there a lot of things it just can't explain? Uh, then it would, if that's the case, then it's not really comprehensive. And uh, so we're going to start with that. And then we're going to talk about, <clears throat> is it consistent? Uh, in the rules of logic, we have a law called the law of non-contradiction, which says a thing cannot be true and also not true at the same time. Uh, and so we want to sort of apply that rule. It, does, does, this, uh, does this worldview, this understanding of things uh, end up sort of contradicting itself, or is it internally coherent? And the third thing we want to talk about is, is it competent? And what we mean there is, uh, does it work? Does it uh, generate any kind of meaningful ethics? Could you live according to it? Does it recognize the agency of human persons, for example? Uh, so we want to think about those three things this morning, and we're going to start with, is it comprehensive? Does it leave out any important aspects of reality or experience? <clears throat> and the first thing <clears throat> in that list excuse me, <clears throat> is uh, something I'm calling irreducible complexity. 
Uh, I want to just read to you a quote from this book, which is, a, I think, an important book in this whole discussion. Uh, it's called Darwin's Black Box. It's getting to be kind of an old book now, but uh, it's written by a, a biochemistry professor, and uh, it, kind of, it makes uh, this argument. Uh, I'm just going to read a, a quote from this book. Science has made enormous progress in understanding how the chemistry of life works, but the elegance and complexity of biological systems at the molecular level have paralyzed science's attempt to explain their origins. This has been virtually, there has been virtually no attempt to account for the origin of specific complex biomolecular systems, much less any progress. Many scientists have gamely asserted that explanations are already in hand or will be sooner or later, but no support for any such assertions can be found in the professional science literature. More importantly, there are compelling reasons based on the structure of the systems themselves to think that a Darwinian explanation for the mechanisms of life will forever prove elusive. Now I'm going to see if I can translate that. <clears throat> what he's saying is, if you look at the cell, and if you look at the chemistry going on in a cell, a living cell, it is uh, irreducibly complex in such a way that it could not have developed incrementally. In other words, it couldn't have grown up. You have two systems that depend on each other, for example. You have two systems that depend on each other that would have both had to have evolved together at the same time for this whole thing to work. Uh, and uh, we used to say, say example for as an example of this, the mechanism of the human eye. You say, well, there's too much going on there for that to have developed slowly. And, and what incremental change caused it to be able to actually see? And, by the way, it caused your brain at the same time to be able to... Sorry, I'm just getting a phone call. <laughs> Ignore. Uh, okay, so... <laughs> thanks for this Bluetooth pickup. Uh, so what was that? Oh, so you, you have all these systems that are interdependent that would have had to evolve together. And what uh, Mr. Behe shows is that the deeper you look into living organisms, the worse this problem gets. So that what you have is something that's irreducibly complex. And then what he says here is a Darwinian evolutionary uh, model is, has a really hard time explaining how that might have come to be in that way. 
and so this is a this is a problem for in other words there's all these things that are there that we can observe that uh, this model is not effective in explaining uh, <clears throat> so um, the second the second thing I would observe here is something I would call the coded nature of things. There's a certain sense in which nature, especially biology, has a language, has a code. Uh, and you could, you could think about this in terms of like DNA and how my, this organism that is my body develops is, is encoded in this code that I received some from my mother and some from my father and it is embedded in every cell in my body so that it develops in a very particular way and uh, it's, it, is, it is in fact a code well it's very difficult to account for a code if there's not an author of the code it, in other words, this uh, biologically recorded, it's actually information that is recorded in our biology. And uh, if I, if you look at this, if your handout here, <clears throat> we could talk about it on two levels. You could say this is uh, a bunch of chemicals uh, that some of them are red, some of them are black, some of them are blue, some of them are green, or cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, that are blended together to form shapes on this piece of processed wood pulp. And would you say that's all there is to this handout? No. What this handout is, is code. It's actual information that I composed completely independently from the process of putting ink on paper. So that when the machine that puts the ink on the paper puts the ink on the paper, it communicates from my mind to yours. That is something that transcends the physical object. Well, if there's such a thing in the material object of the universe, uh, well, that's a clue. That's a thing that's difficult to account for through random processes, through time and chance, through a purely material thing. This is like your illustration with the marbles. This is, if, if anyone picked up this piece of paper and you said, did the ink just jump on the paper in this way? No one would conclude that it did. It, it could not have, we would say. It had to have an author because the ink on the paper here communicates information 
that is transcendent of the process of the material object. Well, the same thing is true of your body and of every body and of every living creature on the whole wide planet. <clears throat> and so, because there's information encoded, it seems reasonable, at least, to conclude that there's an encoder. And it seems also reasonable to conclude that the probability of that just happening without any agency seems at least far-fetched. It's harder to believe that than to believe in the author. Yeah. As just like it's harder, it, you, you wouldn't pick up any book and say it just happened. It involved intention, and it involved the intention of an acting agent. So wherever we find encoded information, we have this issue. And so because there is real coded information in nature, nature is not entirely explained in the terms of material naturalism. So we have a, comprehension, a comprehensiveness problem. This also operates on a grand scale. So we have, there's a thing uh, called the anthropic principle, which is a big observation by a bunch of mathematicians and scientists that the universe is tuned fine-tuned, like fine-tuned to the, you know, a hundred decimal places, to provide for the sort of life that exists on this planet. That if you took any one of a hundred different con universal constants in the universe and just went out to like the hundredth decimal point and changed it by one digit, the whole thing wouldn't work. So one of the things you could observe in the whole universe is a sort of irreducible complexity. And of course, there's not just one of these. There's a, there's a dozen of these, or a hundred, I don't know how many. But there's any number of these universal content, con, uh, constants that make the universe possible. And if they were off by even a little, none of this would be. Um, now, that is not uh, an absolutely airtight argument. Because the argument against that is, well, the thing that is, is the thing that evolved. Okay, but it's still hard to look at that and call it an accident a random happening. The probability is off the charts. And it's probably, so you said, uh, coming from entropy or from anthropos? Uh, from anthropos. In other words, the, the, the universe, if you look at these variables in the universe, all, these, all the fine-tuning of how chemistry and physics works looks like it was made to make us. Yeah, because so, man, that's right. Sorry, that didn't need an explanation. Anthropos is about humanity. So, 
the whole thing looks like it's fine-tuned to make human life possible. Uh, okay. If, if you, in other words, if you stand back and look at the universe, it looks like it was made to house us. Now, this might be the guy you were talking about earlier, Ernst, uh, the Oxford scientist, professor, mathematician, his name is, the one I'm referring to now is a guy named John Lennox. John Lennox is really good at showing how math and science actually kind of demonstrate that there is a God. <clears throat> and if you do a YouTube search on that name, you'll find lots of really good stuff. I would encourage you to watch any of it. Uh, the guy's name is John Lennox. He's very Very. And funny. And easy to listen to. And uh, he, he sort of makes this point. Like, the whole thing, you can't even start on this project if you adopt this absolute materialism. Uh, anyway. The next thing on my list is uh, the material healthiness of a spiritual person. <clears throat> In other words, this has been studied, <laughs> and uh, it turns out that people with uh, religious faith, doesn't matter which one it turns out in this scale, but people who believe in supernatural, in the supernatural realm, which is actually, it turns out, nearly everyone, uh, those people are healthier than people who don't. One, one way they study this is uh, they study uh, prayer. People who pray, the people they pray for get well more often than the people who nobody prays for. Uh, okay. Uh, now, I don't regard this as a particularly strong argument, but it's also something you can't really ignore uh, because it is measurable. Spiritual belief actually helps people. People with uh, religious faith actually do better in their material well-being. Sorry? Yeah, it turns out, uh, <laughs> turns out what the religious faith doesn't, is, I don't know that you can measure a distinction there. So that's interesting, isn't it? So should I become a meditator instead of a prayer person? Well, I don't recommend that, but I can't make that recommendation based on this evidence alone. Uh, so, uh, now, you could ask this question, does, could this have a materialistic explanation? And the answer is yes, it could. Why, why are people religious? Well, scientists ask this question. If the world is a, just the material world and there's nothing else to it, why do, why do we get religious? And the answer is because it helped us survive. So people, religious people survived better than non-religious people. And I can't remember the details of this argument, but there is such an argument. So that's why we all became religious. And religion is nearly universal in humanity. Another explanation is maybe there's a God who answers prayer. Maybe the spiritual world isn't just a false belief that we made up to make ourselves more effective. 
Uh, okay. Maybe also ignoring the spiritual nature of the actual universe has bad consequences. If the universe actually is a spiritual place and I pretend that it isn't, maybe that's damaging. Maybe that hinders my survival in some way. There's a, another book I would recommend to you. This book is by a guy named Patrick Glynn, G-L-Y-N-N. -N. It's called God the Evidence. Uh, and he goes through a lot of this stuff, the anthropic principle, the whole, uh, all the studies about the effectiveness of prayer, lots of, lots of this stuff he uh, talks about in this book. And so he cites a lot of studies that have demonstrated a positive correlation between faith and both physical and emotional health. All right, well, the fourth thing on my list is the simple existence of moral agency and responsibility. This is uh, C.S. Lewis's starting argument in his book, Mere Christianity. You can tell how long I've had this book by what it looks like. If you buy one now, it doesn't look like this. Uh, but C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, the first section, the first book, book one, right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. And so he makes this argument that the existence of right and wrong, he starts by imagining a conversation where one guy is complaining to another guy about something you should have done. You should have. And the guy doesn't say, well, I don't think your rule is a good rule. He said he makes an argument for why he didn't violate the rule. In other words, in humanity, there's a seemingly instinctive impulse for moral responsibility. There is a should and a should not. Now, we don't all have the exact same idea of what should and should not, but we all have that idea. How does that develop in a purely materialistic universe? Where did that come from? I'm struggling with that. Yeah. Because I myself am an ethical hedonist. Mm -hmm. I want to reduce pain as much as possible and Correct. pleasure as much as possible. The argument of morality is physical because the reason something is bad is because it hurts, and that's physical. Right. The reason something is good is because it's pleasurable, and that's physical. Yeah. And I, I recognize that you need to be ethical, but I want to make sure that my pain does not, oh, that my pleasure doesn't cause him pain. Correct. So, we're going to talk some more about this later when we get to uh, competence, because that's really where ethics comes into this conversation more directly. Uh, so, I hope to address that here as we proceed. Uh, and for me, it's personal, because I said my daughter is a scientist, and I had right. this discussion with her, and she said, that, that argument doesn't hold water, so now I'm curious for yeah. the next lunch with my daughter. 
Okay. <laughs> well, we'll see how I do. Uh, so, yeah, we are going to talk about, because uh, this, here I'm just raising the question, how do you get moral agency and responsibility in a universe that doesn't have it? And so, uh, the answer to the question, and I'm going to say more about this later, is something like uh, interest utilitarianism that's all about uh, reducing suffering or increasing pleasure or whatever the opposite of suffering is. Yeah. Um, okay, so for now, we're just putting it on this list of something that's not really well accounted for in this system of thinking. Uh, the number, number five here is the nearly universal spiritual orientation of humanity. And again, we might say people are naturally religious. In other words, we developed religion because it helped us to, to fight harder to stay alive or something like that. Uh, <clears throat> all right. People are naturally religious. This is uh, difficult to explain purely on the basis of a mythology, this concept of religion, especially if you don't just rule out the possibility at the outset of the discussion, which is mostly what is attempted these days. Uh, we, do, we, we do this move like, well, you can have your religion if you want to, but that's a separate thing from science. And then we come around and bite you on the other side. And we say, you need to believe in science, which is not a scientific assertion, but a religious one. <clears throat> so, uh, our next C, C number two, is, is it consistent? Well, methodological naturalism, that move where we said, as a, as a practice, we're going to assume that this thing that we're looking at is a purely material thing. And we're going to study it and figure out how it works. That can be a very fruitful exercise for discovering the cause and effect relationships of the natural universe. But the turn to philosophical naturalism involves a basic violation of the law of non-contradiction. The practice of discovery. I'm a scientist. I'm examining the world. I set up experiments to examine some particular element. I run my experience. I collect the data. I evaluate it. I evaluate the data. Also, before I did any of this, I formed a hypothesis. That hypothesis, by definition, it might have been inspired by some previous research. But by definition, it is personal. It involves my personal agency and responsibility. It is a statement of faith to be tested. And so the very practice of discovery necessarily involves some set of metaphysical presuppositions. What, well, metaphysical presuppositions. 
some article of faith adopted at the beginning of the inquiry. I cannot view anything, I can't observe anything except from some particular point of view. And in science, I can't run an experiment without a hypothesis to test. And some person or community of persons decides what is a worthwhile hypothesis to test. Because we're going to spend resources on testing it. And so you're responsible in the community, the fellowship, if you will, of science to uh, run meaningful experiments. Now, I don't know if you've observed how full of metaphysics all of that was. How full of things that are not material, things that are uh, personal and even spiritual. Uh, <clears throat> the practice of science depends depends on adopting certain articles of faith before we begin. Augustine was correct. The pursuit of knowledge is faith seeking understanding. Oh, and he stole it from Isaiah, I think. And that's, that's correct. I would say that, I would argue that that is the case in all of our pursuit of knowledge. It begins and must begin with some unprovable presupposition, some assumption of things, some article of faith. Now, if you really want to read a crazy book, you could uh, study a book called Personal Knowledge by a scientist, a man named Michael Pavani, who uh, develops this concept. How, and he developed this concept not from a religious point of view, but from the point of view of a uh, physical chemist. In other words, as a scientist, he was studying what is it that scientists actually are doing. And uh, he uh, studied this very carefully. I would really recommend this book, Ernst. Uh, and it's, it is not at all written from any kind of theological perspective. Uh, but he, he makes a very clear and compelling case for this principle that science is conducted by persons and therefore it is a personal enterprise and at the front end of it is the adoption of certain principles by faith. Like, you must believe that the material world and our observations of it are real. In other words, there is a, an objective reality and I can observe it. I, I can't do any science if I don't adopt those things as true. And I can't show those things to be true by the practice of science. I, I start from that article of faith. 
I also need to believe that the material world is a world of adequately caused effects. <laughs> I, I do science based on the presupposition that I can't show by science. I begin science by believing that things are causes and those causes have effects and those effects would not occur without an adequate cause. And so I, I immediately, as soon as I'm in science, well, before I can do any science, I adopt the chain of cause and effect as true. And I can't show that to be true in a purely materialistic fashion. It's an article of faith. And science, of course, adopts articles of faith all the time in order to proceed. Each hypothesis, which I'm going to test, is a proposed article of faith. It's a proposal of something I believe. And in fact, typically, not always, but typically, it's something I do believe and I want to show whether it's really true or not. So faith seeks understanding. I don't, scientists don't go around stumbling upon facts. They're very intentional in their focus. They, they move because they believe. And so they, they examine the material world because they believe it's worth examining and that this examination will prove their fruit and that I can actually understand the real objective reality of the world. <clears throat> Philosophical materialism claims to remove faith from our knowledge seeking. But it's really only the substitution of one faith for another faith. And a, a philosophical, a commitment to philosophical materialism, that is the belief that the material universe is all that there is, is the faith that says there's no need for faith. And that is an essential contradiction. I cannot reach that conclusion except by concluding it to begin with. And one of my claims is we don't do that. When naturalists rely on the mythology of time and chance, and that is what it is. It is a myth. And when I say myth, I don't mean that it's necessarily untrue. But the idea of time and chance are the producers of all that we can see producers of all that there is. Well, that's a creation story. And the qu only question is, would you prefer that creation story or another one? But that's what it is. It is not something we observed in nature. Because we weren't there. So that's a creation story. And it unwitting, sorry, <laughs> It unwittingly violates the law of non 
non-contradiction. This is what is actually said. The universe exploded into being. If you say that, you are asserting that something existed before it existed. That the universe did something before there was a universe to do it. That something was self-creating. That there's an uncaused cause. Okay, well, I don't mind saying there's an uncaused cause. Because something must be there. That is that. There must be, if there is anything, there must be an eternal thing. An uncaused cause. I mean, all the classic arguments for the existence of God rely on this. But that, that is true. Some, if anything is, something must be without a cause. The only question is, is that the material universe itself, or is it something else? Is there a spiritual reality that accounts for that? Or is there a God? Or is the universe the eternal thing, the material world? Well, okay. I, if the argument commonly made against God is that believing in God is something like believing in Santa Claus. There's no evidence. Well, here's the problem. There's no evidence for the other creation story either, if you want to adopt that argument. There's nothing, that's, that not, there's nothing compelling that says, I ought to just agree that the universe is eternal, a material world, as opposed to an eternal creator of it. You're, this argument just doesn't go anywhere. Now, that's all I'm saying at this moment, is that argument doesn't go anywhere. And that's a two-edged sword, maybe you can see that. Like, okay, so neither does mine. I'm going to have to have something else if I'm going to say, this is why you should believe in God. But what we're talking about now is, is this consistent? Or am I arguing against my own case when I argue for a philosophical materialism. Uh, R.C. Sproul's book, uh, Not a Chance, uh, also really good, also kind of hard to read, uh, but Not a Chance, he discusses this whole problem of self-creation and the logical impossibilities that science is these days sometimes asserting. Uh, <clears throat> time and chance this is part of, this is a quote from Sproul. Time and chance have no being. Time and chance are not actual existences. Uh, consequently, no power. Time and chance have no being, consequently no power. Yet they are able to be so effective as to render God an anachronism. At least with God, we have a potential miracle worker. With chance, we have nothing. Chance is a mathematical evaluation of things. It isn't a thing. Uh, and so he's, his argument is, with chance, we have nothing with which to work the miracle. Chance offers us a... This is a funny expression. Chance offers us a rabbit without a hat. 
And what's even more astonishing, without a magician. What was there before the Big Bang? Well, where he goes to answer that question is, the if you're going to adopt a philosophical, materialistic point of view, what happens before the Big Bang is an endless series of Big Bangs, where the material universe explodes, contracts, and so all the eternal thing is the material thing. And that's where you need to end up. And then you're at a point where you're like, well, pick your eternal thing. It, it comes back to your same question, why is that easier to believe than a creator? You have convinced me that there is a God. Okay. An original creator, a designer. Uh-huh. Now the next step, though, I have when I argue with my children. <laughs> Is okay. Does this energy in the beginning have personality? Does he have uh, a mind, feelings, and a will? Right. Yeah. And if he does have she or it uh, have a mind, feelings, and a will, how do we find out what he thinks and what he feels and what he mm-hmm. feels? Yeah, and these are all utterly valid questions and beyond the scope of today's discussion. <laughs> so, but I, my own my, my own my own argument for that would be well, he reveals himself. So, in the, from a Christian point of view, we're making a historical argument that the God who is all those things is a self-revealing triune person God. And so then we're into a whole other realm of that discussion. And Lewis goes through this in Mere Christianity to some degree also. He says, well, so you might be convinced that there's personal, or, or that there's a God. And then you need to be convinced that there's a personal God. And then you need to be convinced that that personal God is the Trinitarian God of the Christian faith. And each of those steps is a discrete step. Like they're not, you, you're not going to show by showing that uh, naturalistic materialism is a faulty way of thinking that the Christian God is the God that is. So we're, we've, we've jumped beyond the scope of our conversation for today, but yeah. 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 Yes. Uh, yes. All of that. Yeah. And that. that and that isn't. Uh, that isn't a claim without basis like it often is accused of being, you know, so, uh, you know, for me, this sort of revolves around, well, Jesus, the man Jesus died and rose from the dead, and that's a demonstrably, historically true fact, uh, and so that's a powerful argument for his claims and for the claims of his apostles about him, and so on and so on. But that, again, that has to operate in the context of a, some sort of fit 
uh, some sort of fitting is the way I would describe this of a more robust biblical worldview to the world that we observe, know, experience, etc. So for me, that question of fitting is an important question. And it's kind of what we're getting at when we're talking about these three C's. Those three C's could be applied to a biblical Christian worldview of the origin of things, or the nature of the universe, or so. The, for me, the question then is, which jacket fits better? Which, which of these comprehensive ways of understanding the world uh, is superior, if you will, in these terms? In it's it accounts for everything. It is internally consistent, and of course, the biblical Christian worldview has internal consistency issues. Uh, the question is, are they worse than those? Right. So, and then is it competent? Can can I live by it? Can it? Does it play out in real life for real human beings in a meaningful way? And so, all of that would come into play, and that's not a short <laughs> uh, conversation, as you know. It's a lifelong Yeah, absolutely. All right, let me get to competent, and this is the problem of agency and determinism. In the naturalistic, materialistic worldview, it's a pretty deterministic point of view. In other words, things, whatever happens is all that could have happened because everything is a matter of cause and effect, and so an adequate cause produces the necessary effect. <clears throat> How does a time and chance universe give rise to moral responsibility? Well, the best explanation of that I've ever read is this book, which I do not recommend. I, yeah, don't worry about reading this book unless you're really super interested in this. Peter Singer was a bioethicist at Yale University. He's a, a Marxist. He's the guru of the animal rights movement. And what this book is, is an attempt to answer this question. How does a time and chance universe give rise to moral responsibility? And what his explanation of that is something we call in the, his vocabulary, it's called interest utilitarianism. And that is what uh, Ernst was describing earlier. It's, so here, my, my quote is, the best you can do in the development of ethics from a materialistic worldview is something like a cold-hearted utilitarianism. And I'm saying cold-hearted on purpose because it really is cold-hearted. The extension of the will to survive into the utility of avoiding suffering and preferring pleasure. It's, uh, it's, it's got lots of internal problems. For example, I have to make reasonable predictions about the implications of my actions, the, or the likely consequences of my actions, in terms of pleasure and suffering. 
Well, that's not as simple as it sounds. That is actually nearly impossible to do. In fact, I think on almost any moral choice you could be presented with, we could talk you long enough to you about the potential consequences causing suffering or increasing pleasure. We could talk long enough that you would be paralyzed by the fact that you simply can't know what will be the consequences of your behavior in those terms alone. So one of the problems is, is that the problem of predictability of consequence. Uh, and so we can set up all kinds of scenarios where, you know, you would choose this, like I would choose the, to sacrifice one person to save a million people. That, that's, a, that's a choice, a potential moral choice. And the modeling of this way of thinking tends to be framed in those kind of hypotheticals. Um, but then the other, one of the other problems with this is because you can't know, you need, we need arbiters. Also, you can't be relied upon to do what's, to really adequately consider my pain and suffering <laughs> or my pain. Even though you should by these terms, yeah, okay, a Christian is enough of a utilitarian to go ahead and say, yeah, it's good to reduce suffering and increase pleasure in the world. Yeah, uh, but the, the problem is, are you a good, uh, can you be relied on to weigh your suffering against mine? That's so a point. Yeah, that, that can hold five people. You've got six in them, so all six of them around. Yeah. So we have to throw one out of the board. Yeah. Who's I'm not voting for me. Well, this is a lot more. But maybe he's involved the smartest people. Yeah, right. Maybe we need Bob later. So I, this, is, this is a real problem with this formulation is... I, and so uh, I, can't, I can't be relied upon to adequately account for your suffering or pleasure. And you can't be relied on to adequately account for mine. So this is how I become a Marxist, because I need a totalitarian arbiter of these interests. I need someone who will say, yeah, yours weighs more than his, so you must and he must or the whole thing won't work. It's really difficult to write a set of rules from a, this sort of, that operate in any kind of fine notion from this point of view. And I need that arbiter also to weigh pain and suffering against joy and pleasure in a way that never depends on who is involved. In other words, it, it can't matter whether it's Bill's pleasure or John's. It's only about the maxima, it's about maximizing pleasure and minimizing stuff. So this arbiter, who's this guy? Who's going to have this job? The strongest. And what's going to make him <laughs> adequately weigh the ethical problems of the rest of us and not consider himself, which is what he's required. 
Hmm. In other words, what we need, oh, we also need this arbiter to be omniscient. Because he needs to know exactly what will be the consequences of all of Bill's moral actions. And how they will affect everyone else. Everyone else in all of the rest of time. Oh, I'm starting to think maybe we need someone we can pray to. Someone who's omniscient and, and, and does know the exact consequences of every action that, or potential action so that it can be weighed and judged properly. Otherwise, my problem is I can develop a sort of ethical concept and then I back up one more step and I say, why do I want one? What is it in me that needs to hold you responsible? And maybe this developed from, I need to survive. <laughs> and I need you on board with me to do that. Perhaps this sort of moral sense evolved. But is that a really good explanation? And even if it is true, is, is, this a, is this really a workable ethical approach? And it's not, <laughs> it's not obvious to me that it's handy. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it might be actually really hard to implement in any meaningful way. Uh, wow, we are way past out of time. So those are the three C's. Now, I'm, I'm supposed to have more to say about uh, you know, what the Bible says. And one of our, as if we evaluate a system, we also need to present what is, what is the truth? We wanted to, we want to evaluate uh, the, the thing we're calling untrue. But then we also need to say, we also need to elevate what, it, what the actual truth is. So maybe each one of these things will take three lessons because we can't keep going now because it's 1030 already. So how long have we been going? Well, not since I started talking. Just an hour. We can go, we'll continue next time, yes. And next time we'll talk about, well, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible support an argument of, uh, an argument of origin, an intelligent design argument? Does the Bible support that? Does the Bible anticipate that this, uh, that the Bible's creation story would gain wide acceptance? So on. You've got a list of questions on your page. We're just going to look at some of these scriptures, and maybe we'll start into the next one, too. I'm going to stop there.